Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. Higher rationale for sleep one night, and one of them asked me if I had ever stayed up all night before. Have you ever done an all-nighter, they asked me. Oh, son, I said to myself. Have I ever done an all-nighter? All-nighters were my specialty in college. There was one term in college where I think I ended up staying up for like 72 hours straight writing papers and studying exams and power-chugging Red Bulls. Have I ever done all-nighters? I practically wrote the book on all-nighters. Now, was it a wise decision to do this? Absolutely not. Was the work I submitted as a result of doing this, my best work? Absolutely not. Did I recognize at the time that staying up for three days straight would threaten my mental, emotional, and physical well-being? Say it with me, church. Absolutely not. Have I ever done an all-nighter? Asked by my 11-year-old, who as a six-month-old indirectly assisted me in helping relive all those all-nighter experiences by waking up every 30 minutes for like a month as we were trying to teach him to sleep through the nights. Have I ever done an all-nighter, he asked me. There is something indefinable about the twilight haze of the world that you see when you've stayed up all night. There's a slight sick-to-your-stomach feeling that pairs perfectly with your dry eyes that ache every time you blink. I remember writing papers in college and seminary and getting to a point somewhere around 5 a.m. where it's just not working anymore and you look down at the page and the cursor is blinking at the end of a sentence that you've written deleted and rewritten repeatedly and you realize the well of words and wisdom has long since dried up nothing else is going to come that is good and so it is probably best if you just close the laptop sleep for a little bit and finish up when you're not so exhausted have i ever done an all-nighter simon peter part owner of a fishing business in capernaum had finally wrapped up work on the third shift, an all-night, pitch-dark, don't-scare-the-fishes shift with his brother Andrew and their business partners James and John. After hour after hour of dropping their nets over the side of their 27-foot shallow-bottomed fishing boat and then hauling them up and using the moonlight to check for any catches, they are exhausted. They've watched the sun rise over the Sea of Galilee, and needing to rest and clean their nets, they've sailed close to the shore, which their shallow-keeled vessel could easily do. 
Maybe they've even hauled their ship partway up onto the shore and they've lashed a line from the fore of the boat to a stone or a tree. Disembarking, Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, they sit on the shore and they talk the way people talk after they've stayed up all night. That is to say, there's a lot of grunts and half-finished sentences. They're tired. They've caught nothing, which adds to their vocational concerns, since catching fish and selling them at the market is their entire business model. So to get ready for the next evening of fish, they're sitting there yawning, disentangling their nets and washing out all the seaweed and muck that has gotten caught in its weave. And about the time they're looking pretty grim and feeling really worn out, at the exact moment that you would definitely not want to talk to anybody else or be around people in general, at the moment of peak exhaustion, there comes this guy, Jesus, walking down to the lakeshore, and behind him comes a whole crowd of people pressing in on him like he's a celebrity. The four bedraggled, tired fishermen who are enjoying a peaceful, quiet, early morning net-washing session are suddenly beset by a loud, rambunctious crowd coming to listen to an energetic, engaging celebrity preacher. Trying to carve a little space between himself and the crowd, Jesus, the preacher, climbs into Simon Peter's boat, lashed to the shore, and maybe Peter and Andrew protested at first, Hey! That's our boat! And dragging their nets behind them, they climbed in after him, and eventually Jesus asks Peter to push the boat out so Jesus can more easily speak to the crowd. It was a well-known acoustical phenomenon that on a calm day, a flat lake can carry the human voice. And if there was a slight hillside on the shore, the effect would be like an ancient amphitheater with Jesus at the center stage teaching and Peter and Andrew, the exhausted fishermen, seated right back on the same boat from which they had desperately been trying to take a break like a cross-country trucker who just finished a 15-hour haul and is sitting at the truck stop eager for some food and rest, only to find himself right back in his rig driving around a celebrity. Peter and Andrew are tired. They are weary. They've done their work, and now they're chauffeurs for some guy who's giving a really great TED Talk. But the story today gets especially interesting when Jesus finishes his teaching. I find it interesting Luke provides no description of what Jesus was talking about. No indication how many hands were raised and heads were bowed. No sense of what the impact was of Jesus' teaching. We don't know whether the crowd liked it. We don't know what Peter and his crew thought about it. Jesus teaching from the boat, it turns out, is not the point of this story. It's what comes after the teaching is over. Maybe Jesus noticed that Peter and his crew have been washing empty nets. And so, to thank Peter for letting him use his fishing boat as a pulpit, maybe Jesus is going to help him make a little income. Put out into the deep water, Jesus says, and let down your nets for a catch. It's bold. It's a decisive instruction. All of the verbs here are imperative verbs, a tense that's used for, to communicate commands and orders. Jesus isn't asking Peter to do this. He's telling him. He's ordering him to do two things. First, put out into the deep water. And second, let down your nets 
for a catch. Does Jesus know something about fishing that Peter and his crew do not? We don't know. But many scholars are convinced that Jesus' instruction flew in the face of conventional wisdom. By this time of the day, the fish just aren't congregating in the deep waters, and while you might get lucky and snag a few fish, it's just not a safe bet. Plus, as I've already said, Peter has already worked an all-night shift. He's tired. But here it is. This is the moment that we've been building for. This, what happens next, is the epicenter of the entire text this morning as I understand it. Not the command to put out into the deep or to let down the nets, but Peter's response to Jesus in verse 5. It comes in two parts. First, Peter says, Master, we have worked all night long, but we have caught nothing. This statement is a statement of weariness, of despondency, uh, a cynical assessment of the brutal realities of his moment. Master, we've worked all night long and have caught nothing. We've been in these waters already, Jesus. We've fished these waters already. There's nothing there. We're tired. It's been a long night. We've got nothing to show for it. And lurking maybe behind this is perhaps a sense of, look at this guy who thinks, knows nothing about fish. He's trying to tell us, the professional fishermen, where to fish. But the second part is even more important then. Simon says, but if you say so, I will let down the nets. It's a statement of obedience and trust. It's a statement that acknowledges that there is a differential here between the fisherman in the boat and the teacher in the boat. A statement that says, for you, Jesus, I'll give it a try. Some scholars have tried to see this statement of Simon's as a tongue-in-cheek, cynical answer, like, okay, know-it-all, if you say so, I'll put the nets down. I, I, I just don't see it. I see the weariness, I see the exhaustion, I see even the disbelief. But something about Jesus has captivated Peter's attention to the point that he's willing to give this idea, however strange and against the grain it is, a try. Peter's from Capernaum. Maybe he's seen some of Jesus' miracles that he's done in Capernaum. Maybe he's heard the rumors about what Jesus has done elsewhere. I mean, this is a small town in an area of small towns. Word gets around. Maybe he's genuinely pleased to have this popular preacher on his boat, and he's willing to give in and oblige him. But it doesn't really matter at this point whether Peter knows or believes anything about Jesus. What matters is that Jesus tells him to fish in a place that all of his instincts said was hopeless, pointless, and downright silly. But he does it anyway. And we see how the story ends. A huge catch. An enormous catch. A catch so large it took two boats and crews to haul it aboard. And it still caused the boats to sink. We don't get a number of fish here, but it's easily in the hundreds. This was a catch whose proceeds could be sold and provide something like a whole annual salary for this business in one night. We're supposed to realize that in this miraculous moment, these tired, exhausted, financially strapped fishermen have just received everything that they have worked for the previous night times a thousand. This is an extravagant provision of fish. 
It's enough that Peter has a sudden realization that the only force in the universe capable of making this reality occur is the presence of God. And so in this moment of revelation, just like Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6, Peter says, go away, Lord, I am a sinful man. There's too much glory in this boat, too much wonder-working power If only Jesus knew the choice words that Peter probably used when fishing the previous night. If only Jesus knew the kind of man Peter was, the rough-edged, rough-tongued, blue-collar fisherman he was. If God ever showed up in his boat, Peter would be in trouble. And here God is in his boat, and Peter needs some space. Go away, Lord. I am a sinful man. But Jesus speaks to him in those comforting ancient words of reassurance, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. And the text says when they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. They left it all behind. Every fish, every net, every financial investment, every boat, every oar, they they left behind their well-being, their hopes, their prospects. They left behind their vocations, their sense of purpose. They left behind their routines, their aspirations, everything because of what they have seen in this person in their boat. Exhausted and amazed, these fishermen on the shore of Sea of Galilee become the first to leave everything and follow after Jesus. This morning, I am attracted to the command of Christ to put out into the deep water and let down their nets. The fishing experts looked at all the evidence. They'd reviewed their past 12 hours of work, and they had rightly concluded that there was no longer any chance of success in these waters. But Jesus says anyway, let down your nets for a catch. And they do it. And in doing so, church, I think they model for us a weary obedience. And encountering this passage today, we are invited to consider the call of Christ in our life and to offer him a similar obedience. I don't know what deep waters you have been fishing in this past week or month or year. Maybe you've been laboring in the waters of a wounded marriage or a strained relationship, and you're convinced that there is nothing left to find. Maybe you've been out in the deep waters of caring for an aging parent and your hands and your heart have become calloused and you're convinced that there is no longer any joy possible in that relationship. Maybe you've been out in the deep waters of personal medical crisis. You wake up daily wondering what symptom is going to prevent you from feeling like yourself today and every net you've thrown over has dragged up only more pain and anxiety. Maybe you've been out in the deep waters of vocational uncertainty. You've seen your coworkers lose their jobs and you're afraid you're next. You've tried to fish for some security or peace of mind, but the nets keep coming up empty. Maybe you're out in the deep waters of financial debt and you keep fishing for a windfall, something to get you back onto firm footing, but nothing seems to be working. I don't know what waters you've been throwing your nets into only to come up with nothing whatsoever, but what I do know is that each of us in worship today have spent some time in the deep water with empty nets. The thing we think we need thing that we want the most just feels out of reach, unattainable. 
Peter and his fishing company depended daily on a catch of fish to keep their world in orbit, to put food on their tables, to provide for their children and families, to satisfy their own vocational call. And when the nets came up empty, as it would happen, it would be a debit against their own future, a reminder that things might not always last. So when Jesus says, let down your nets for a catch, I can only imagine that after a night of catching nothing, this is met by both cynicism and desperate hope. It's met by a cynicism and a disbelief that comes from already trying everything they knew how to do. They've taken a look at their water and they've concluded there's no more hope there. These waters have been fished. There's nothing left. Maybe you're here today and you are looking into the deep waters of whatever you're dealing with and your sense is there's nothing left there. To try again, to put your nets down into those waters seems foolish or pointless. But Peter and his crew were also desperate to try something that would enable them to keep working, to keep their business going. They might be cynical about the success of this plan, but they also really, really need it to work. And so they obey the command of Christ to let down their nets, and they are overwhelmed with the result. So much fish, it breaks the nets and weighs down their boats. Their cynical sense that there's nothing left in those waters is overwhelmed by a holy reality. For the Jesus in the boat with them is the one whose voice carved out seas from the land and populated the waters with fish in the first place. And their obedience leads to faith. For when the boats hit the shore, they realize they need to leave everything and follow this teacher, this rabbi, this miracle worker, this messiah. And so they leave all the symbols of their exhaustion behind, and they follow after Christ into a new reality. I don't know what waters Jesus might be telling you to let down your nets in today, and I'm not saying that in so doing, it will always produce an overwhelming catch every single time. We're not about magic here in the church. But what I am saying is that no matter how exhausted we might be from whatever waters we've been fishing in, we are each called to exercise obedience to what Jesus is calling us to do, whether as individuals or as a church. Weary or not, to let down our nets into waters that we think have nothing left in them, that we might discover a sea not empty, not hopeless, but one teeming with possibility and hope and life. In the past two years, I have had the privilege of watching staff members here at the church and volunteers and you all continue to let down our nets into waters that we thought would be empty and devoid of hope. I have watched faith in action in your faces as you continue to show up for worship and acts of service. I have seen us throw nets over when everything else said, don't do it, it's silly, it's foolish. There's nothing left in this. And yet, we have found the call of Christ to be obedient, to trust, and to discover not hopelessness, but life, and hope, and possibility. This is what God's kingdom is like. It is like looking into an overfished deep water, and discovering a catch of fish so great it weighs down every possible ship. The good news in this text today is that if Jesus is calling us to fish, 
there is, if Jesus is calling us to throw our nets over into waters that look empty, we can trust that those waters are not empty at all. Might we find in our obedience, weary or not, the joy of knowing that we walk with a Savior who provides and who blesses. I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.